We also hope to consider the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism in question and answer 56, where we are asked, what do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? And again, this is a clause from the Apostles' Creed, as I've given you there. And our instructor gives us this answer. I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no longer remember any of my sins or my sinful nature, against which I need to struggle all my life. Rather, by his grace, God grants me the righteousness of Christ, that I may never come into judgment. Now this article of the forgiveness of sins comes after the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints, and then the forgiveness of sins. Perhaps you might have thought, as I certainly did, I would have put the forgiveness of sins first. Seems like this is kind of the foundation for the rest of the of those articles. Uh, nevertheless, the Apostles' Creed puts it after the confession of the Holy Catholic Church, probably reflecting the fact that it's in the Catholic Church, that it's in the Church of Christ, that you find the forgiveness of sins. In the Church, you find Christ, and in Christ alone, of course, you can find forgiveness of sins. But as I begin the sermon this evening, my friends, I'd like to work through some of these definitions of these important terms that we find that are so essential to understand in this doctrine of the forgiveness of sins. And I've given you these four terms, sin, guilt, punishment, and forgiveness, that I want to define carefully as we seek to understand what it means to say that we confess in the forgiveness of sins. I believe the forgiveness of sins. So the obvious one in the first place, then, is what is sin. And here we're not left to our own devices, because Scripture very clearly teaches us that sin is lawlessness. In 1 John 3, sin is lawlessness. In other words, sin is any choice, any action that we make that is contrary to the law of God. That's it. That's very simple, isn't it? The law says thou shalt or thou shalt not, and sin is any violation of that. We know that sins can be sins of commission. Do you remember learning these terms in catechism? Uh, right? Sins of commission, a sin that you commit. That's when the law says this and you do something contrary to it. But there's also a sin of omission, right? When the law commands us to do something and we omit or we fail, we neglect to do it. Sin of omission and sins of commission. But at any rate, sin is any choice we make that goes contrary to the law of God. Now, sin brings us into the next term there, guilt. Sin brings us into the state of guilt. The law is broken. And God's justice, or we don't, you can think even just of normal law, right? A municipal law or, local, or a state or federal law, right? When we break a law, we come into a state of guilt. And in that state, we are subject to punishment. The law is broken. Justice demands punishment. That justice has to be satisfied. And that justice is satisfied by our punishment. If you're given a fine of $120, right? then you are in a state of guilt. You are not right with the law until the justice is satisfied, the fine is paid, and now you are right. That's why the opposite of guilt, then, is righteousness. Right? We, we sometimes, these terms are so common to us, right? And it's important that we really think carefully about what they mean. Guilt means you're not right with the law. The law has something to say against you. You're in a state of guilt. That means you're subject to punishment, whatever that punishment may be. And when you are in a state of righteousness, that means the law has nothing against you. 
you are not going to be punished. You are right with law, and justice has been satisfied. Then we come to the term of punishment. Punishment. Well, this is the way we satisfy justice, isn't it? That when we're in a state of guilt, the only way we can move out of that state and into a state of righteousness is if we satisfy the justice system. Whether we're talking about God's justice or the justice of the Kalamazoo County Court or the justice of the state of Michigan, justice has to be satisfied. And the way that is satisfied is by punishment. And the law, of course, usually, well, usually the law will dictate what that punishment will be. Now, it's important that we realize that this punishment that we received, that uh, that is the, the way justice is satisfied. Now, sometimes, uh, in, in uh, federal law at least, this can be, uh, this, this punishment is waived. And a person can have their uh, guilt taken away without satisfying justice. We call that a pardon. Right? When, the, when the president pardons someone, uh, there's no question about the person's guilt, but their need to satisfy the justice or to pay the punishment that's been assigned is waived and they are pardoned. That brings me now to forgiveness. The fourth term, forgiveness. Because now we can say that God does not pardon people. God never pardons anyone in the sense of what I just explained pardon is. God's justice, God's justice always requires satisfaction. So if there is going to be forgiveness, which is the removal of guilt, there must be satisfaction paid to the justice of God. God does not pardon someone. Now, we know that in the gospel, our sins can be forgiven, not by us making a personal satisfaction for those sins, but by way of a substitute, that Christ is our substitute, and the punishment that we deserve is poured out upon him, and he makes satisfaction to the justice of God in our place, so that now we can be forgiven. Now, in the catechism answer that we are given, where we confess, I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, and that word satisfaction is, is such an important word in, in Reformed theology, and, and generally just in biblical theology in general, satisfaction. Right? And, it's, and behind that word satisfaction is the idea that God does not pardon people. I know sometimes we use the word pardon as a synonym for forgiveness. And that's okay. We even have some hymns right, that talked about God pardoning us. But in the strict sense of that definition, right, as we understand the word in our political system, God does not pardon anyone. Never. But because of Christ's satisfaction made to the justice of God in our place, God will no longer remember any of my sins or my sinful nature, future sins, against which I need to struggle all my life long. But by his grace, God grants me the righteousness of Christ that I may never come into judgment. So these are these four important concepts of sin, of guilt, punishment, and forgiveness. And maybe we could throw in there next to guilt, righteousness, because righteousness is the opposite of guilt. So sin, guilt and righteousness, punishment and forgiveness. Well, and I suppose the word satisfaction should, should, uh, should also be included in that list. Well, with those, that kind of framework, let's look then at the text that we have before us this evening. Romans chapter 10. Now, in Romans chapter 10 and verse 1, we have the apostle's desire. 
It's the same desire that he expressed in chapter 9, but here he expresses it again. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, that is for my Jewish countrymen, my fellow countrymen, the Jews, is for their salvation. Now, there the Apostle Paul states it uh, uh, very plainly, how earnestly he desired the salvation of the Jewish people in Romans 9 he actually uses a a statement that is much more expressive. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed or damned, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Do you sense, my my friends, how strong the, the heart of Paul beat for the salvation of his own countrymen. Yes, Paul saw himself as an apostle to the Gentiles. But oh, how earnestly he longed and prayed for the salvation of the Jewish people. And that's kind of the backdrop to to both Romans 9 and Romans 10. Now, why is Paul so distressed about his countrymen, the Jews? And he tells us in verse 2, For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. In other words, says Paul, the Jewish people, there's no shortage of religious activity on their part. They are extremely zealous in their religion. It's not that they're apathetic or they're lazy or they're, they're not zealous about the things of God. They have a zeal, but he says, unfortunately, it's a zeal that's not according to knowledge. If I can use the expression, it's as if they're, they're barking up the wrong tree. They're, they're aiming all their zeal and all their activity towards something that won't give them, won't bring them to the goal that they're so earnestly seeking. It's not in accordance with knowledge. Well, what don't they know, Paul? What have they missed? What is their ignorance? And verse 3, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Now, when we read that, my friends, you can read this as Luther originally read this text because it sounds very plain. For not knowing about God's righteousness or God's justice, word righteousness and justice being the same in this language, not knowing about God's justice or righteousness and seeking to establish their own. It seems initially that it says they didn't know about God's righteousness. In other words, the righteousness that is a characteristic of God, one of his attributes. We, we, we believe that, right? That God is a righteous, a just God. For not knowing God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, but now it kind of breaks down, doesn't it? This doesn't seem to make sense. What, what, seeking to establish their own justice? Their own righteousness? They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So they didn't submit themselves to God's righteousness, God's justice. You see how, my friends, we're, we're, we're misunderstanding the term the righteousness of God, aren't we? Just like Luther did back in the days of the Reformation. The righteousness of God here is not talking about the righteousness that is an attribute of God. This righteousness is a righteousness that is a gift that God gives. Now remember, righteousness is the opposite of guilt. And the Jews were earnestly desiring to find a place in their religion that would make them righteous before God. 
to bring them to that place where the law of God had no claim against them. And our text says that they were seeking to establish their own righteousness. In other words, they tried to find this place before God where the law would have no claim upon them, and they tried to establish that themselves by their own working, by dotting every I, by crossing every T. And of course, the Jews were so proud of their law. We know that, right? The Jews loved their law. They knew every commandment. In fact, they, they would take a single commandment and expand it into many more commandments just to be sure that they hadn't violated even the smallest jot or tittle of the law of God. They were diligently seeking, says Paul, to establish their own righteousness. And all the while, God's hands are outstretched to them with a perfect righteousness. If you look in Romans 10 at the end, the very last verse of Romans 10, it's heartbreaking to read this. I think you you can, now we can feel something of Paul's heart. He says, but as for Israel, he, that is God, says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. In other words, God is saying, I have a righteousness for those people. I have a righteousness that I will give them. The perfect record of Christ, which I will give them only for the asking if they would only come in faith and submit themselves to me, that's what we say in verse, at the end of verse 3, they did not subject themselves or submit themselves to the righteousness of God. In other words, if I can paraphrase, they didn't submit themselves or humble themselves to receive the righteousness that God was offering them. God's hands were outstretched to them with a perfect, spotless, flawless righteousness. But the Jews just walked right past it. You know, if I had to think of an example, if you're out in the parking lot and you see someone struggling to get in their car, and they've got their, their thing and they're trying to jimmy the lock, right? They got it in the window and they're sweating and their knuckles are bleeding. They're, they've been trying for hours to get in this car, to get their, to get their lock unlocked. They, they, they lock the keys in the car and they can't get in. And you walk up to them and say, oh, here's the key. Laying right there on the ground. Here, here's the key. Open the door and you go. This is, this is the situation, dear congregation, that breaks Paul's heart. It just, he says, I could wish myself accursed from, from Christ if these people would just realize that God all day long stretches forth his hands with this beautiful offer of a perfect righteousness. But the Jews just walk right by it, insisting on establishing their own righteousness, building their own righteousness, almost like as if they were sewing their own clothing when God holds them out a perfect robe of perfect righteousness. If you want to be righteous, if you want to, be, if you want to stand before the, the courtroom of God, and before the, the justice of God, and know that the law has no claim against you, God says, well, here's the righteousness of Christ. Perfect in every respect. I offer it to you as a gift. But the Jews were obstinate and disobedient. They did not humble themselves. They would not subject themselves to receive the perfect righteousness of Christ. And then the, our text is verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You know, I think behind that verse 4, there's a little bit of Paul's own experience bound up in that verse. We talked about that in our, in our series on Acts. How zealous Paul was for the law. My friends, if there was anyone who, who worked harder at, at establishing his own righteousness 
at weaving for himself a perfect robe of righteousness for himself. It was Paul. Remember that even when he came to the city of Damascus, remember it was noon. Nobody traveled at noon. It was too hot, except Paul. Paul was so zealous for the religion of his fathers that he pushed on even through the heat of the day, determined to find more Christians, to arrest them and drag them back to Jerusalem with him. Why? Because he was working so hard to establish, to build for himself his own righteousness. When he stood before God, he would have been able to say, Lord, I have kept your commandments perfectly, and your law has nothing against me. And Paul worked, and he labored. Do you see him there, my friends? In your mind's eye, you can see Paul laboring, exhausted, working, working, and working, until finally he collapses of exhaustion. He came to an end of his own law-keeping. That's what we have in verse 4. The end of the law. That means the end of our own efforts to keep that law. And when Paul looked up in his exhaustion, in the futility of his attempt, the fruitlessness of his endeavor to build his own righteousness, he looks up and there he sees Christ. Paul, is this what you were looking for? Would you have a righteousness, Paul? A flawless, spotless, perfect righteousness? that you can have not by working for it, not by dotting every I and crossing every T. But here it is, Paul. You can have it just by reaching forth that empty hand of faith. And you can take it out of my hands. I hold it out to you, Paul. In fact, Paul, all day long, all day long I've held out my hands to you, Paul. All the working, all the labor, all the tears, all the struggle, Paul all the backslidings into sin that you've experienced in your life. Why, Paul, here it is. And Paul discovered to his own experience that Christ, maybe I can paraphrase it this way, Christ is at the end of our own law-keeping. Why? For righteousness. Here's the righteousness, Paul, that you're seeking. Again, just like that person trying to get in his car and you pick up the key and hand it to him. And he thinks to himself, what? All that time spent trying to get the lock. All that time bloodying my knuckles. All that time spent trying and trying and trying. Yes, Paul. A perfect righteousness that you can have just for believing. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The whole gospel, my friends, wrapped up in that little verse. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I think, my friends, that's something of, of some of the fire in, Saul's, in, in Paul's zeal to preach the gospel to all the nations was because no one tried harder than Paul. No one worked harder at keeping the law than Paul. But he came to the end of it. He came to the end of it. And he looked up in astonishment to see Christ with a perfect righteousness that he could have just for believing in it. What a wonder, my friends. And that's why Paul's heart was so broken. 
that the Jewish people couldn't see it. They labored and labored and labored. And they didn't see Christ's righteousness. Christ's righteousness given only for faith. So that Paul's sins were forgiven. And he was given a perfect righteousness. Now my friends, one question that I would like to one question that I would like to answer is or one issue I'd like to address before I move on is to think carefully about what that means then to have your sins forgiven. You see, uh, I, I sinned against the law of Grand Rapids twice, actually, when I ran a stop sign in Grand Rapids. And if you went to see the record of Chris Inglesma, my righteousness, as it were, in Grand Rapids, you would see two sins there, right? Ran a stop sign twice. <laughs> twice I ran a stop sign. However, both of those sins have been satisfied for. I paid the fine, and I've been brought into a state of righteousness. But when you go to my record, and, I, and you look, you still see those two sins there, right? You still see those two sins. Now, granted, they've been wiped out. They've been, they've been satisfied for, and I'm not guilty of them any longer. But they're still there. And I could look at your record, right? I could go down to the courthouse and see your record, right? And I would see the sins that you committed against the state, or against the law, or whatever they may be. And you satisfied the punishment, and so they've been dealt with. You see, that's different, though. That's not exactly what, what, is, what is meant by God forgiving our sins. Because when God forgives our sins, the sin is not even on the record anymore. Now, why do I say this? Am I, am I just saying this to, you know, to make a good point in preaching? No, the, the Reformed theologians in the past have noticed this, this fact. Why? Because Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. And there's no sins on Christ's record. There's not even any forgiven sins on Christ's record. You understand me now? That when we look at our record before God, if we went to God's courtroom, we know what we see when we go to the Grand Rapids courtroom or the Kalamazoo courtroom or whatever jurisdiction you're under. But when we go to God's courtroom, and as believers, when we look on our record, it's not that we see a forgiven sin there, but the sin completely is removed. Because Christ's righteousness, says the Catechism. And in Romans 10, we're not told that it's Christ's righteousness. That's in another text. But we are told that God holds out to us as a gift a perfect righteousness. And therefore, when we look in our record in God's courtroom, there's no sin at all there anymore. It's gone. That's an interesting, interesting fact, isn't it? That we learn from the gospel. Our Heidelberg Catechism also makes that explicit. I put the a question and answer, I believe it's 61, on your outline there, so you can read this. But if you have a pencil, just underline those last words there, where it says, uh, as if I had never sinned. Do you see that there? As if I had never sinned, nor been a sinner. And as if I had been as perfectly obedient, as Christ was obedient for me. I wonder if you've ever noticed those words before. That when we look at our record in God's courtroom, to have your sins forgiven means that it's as if I had never sinned in the first place. 
It's as if I went back to the Grand Rapids courtroom and pulled out my record. Where is it? I don't see it anywhere. It's gone. Another question that I'd like to deal with you to, to, uh, disc- or to uh, consider this evening is this in the third heading. What sins are forgiven? Now again, the catechism tells us that God will no, lo- no longer remember any of my sins or my sinful nature against which I need to struggle all my life. In other words, not just the past sins that I committed, but that even the sins that I will commit, because I still have a sinful nature, that hasn't been removed. I still have this inclination to sin. This love for sin that, that, that God does not completely, he wounded, right? It's, it's, it's greatly reduced in its power, but it's still there till the day we die. And we're going to commit sins. And the catechism then says that God will no, rem- no longer remember any of those sins. But when we come to the scriptures, we find some interesting texts. Now, Romans 8, verse 1. If you're in Romans, you can just page back a few. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the beautiful verses at the end of this chapter, in verse 30 and 34. And those and these whom he predestined, he also called. And those and these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. And what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? And it says in verse 33, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? But then we have other verses. Let me read some of these verses to you in Matthew 6 and verse 14. That seem to indicate that our future sins are not forgiven. Matthew 6 and verse 14. Where we read in this, uh, in the teaching of Jesus here, where Jesus is saying, he just gave the, uh, uh, the Lord's Prayer, and now he says, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Well, that seems very much to imply that if we have a spirit towards our fellow brother or sister, and we're not willing to forgive the transgressions or the insults that they do to us, right? that God will not forgive us our sins. It seems to imply, doesn't it, that if we do uh, uh, insult somebody, that we should confess that sin, and then God will forgive it. First John 1 John 1.9, this is a very familiar text to us. First John 1 and verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, that makes us wonder then, what if we don't confess our sins? The, the obvious implication there, right, is that if we do not confess our sins, that he is not faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. And so how does that work then, that, that God forgives our sins initially when we believe in Christ? But what about the future sins that we commit later? And then my, my, last, my last one here is in the book of James. This is where the, the, the prayer of the sick man is, is uh, referenced. And it says, if he has committed any sins, they will be forgiven him. James 5 and verse, 13, or in verse uh, 15, And the prayer 
offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. So in other words, he's sick, he has sin on his record, perhaps even that's why he became sick. But if he's committed sins, and the prayer of faith is prayed over him, God has promised then to forgive those sins. But what happened when this brother first became a Christian? Were not all his sins wiped out? Well, this is a difficult question, isn't it? These verses seem very clearly to imply that these sins are not forgiven us until they are confessed. How do we resolve that? Well, my friends, one way the the theologians have, have taught us to address this question is that when we first believe in Christ, our sins are, as it were, Uh, Well, certainly all our present and past sins are forgiven. And the ground is laid for the forgiveness of all the future sins. But the sins aren't actually forgiven until they are committed and confessed. I wonder if there isn't something of a, when I was thinking about this, something of an analogous situation when you get married. Right? When, you, when you marry, you know, now you don't know what or how or when, but you know that your spouse is going to sin against you. You know that, right? That's a fact. As a, as a person, a fallible person, they are going to sin against you. But isn't it true at the marriage altar that in one sense you forgive all those sins? Now, this analogy doesn't work perfectly because there are some things, of course, you wouldn't forgive. But still, in a, in a wide sense, you would, you'd forgive the sins that they're going to commit against you. Even though that sin hasn't been committed, and it hasn't been confessed. I don't know if that situation helps or not. It seems somewhat analogous to me. The real question, my friends, that I think as Reformed people that we would ask is not that as a Christian, you committed a sin, you didn't confess that sin, so it's unforgiven, so now when you die, you're going to go lost. That we wouldn't say. Because we have so many promises in Scripture that God will, uh, that the, the saints will persevere, Right? perseverance of the saints. But the real question then is, as we're given in 1 John 2, verse 19, was, that, was such a person really a Christian in the first place? Were they really converted at all? You find uh, the apostle saying in 1 John 2, and verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. In other words, they are not all true Christians. And so if there is a sin that remains unconfessed, the question that we should address ourselves is, am I really a Christian at all? Now, that's a very unsettling question. I understand that. But unconfessed sin, my friends, is a very serious thing and not to be taken lightly. An unconfessed sin, unrepented sin, is an evidence that we are not right with God. And it needs to be repented of and confessed. And then we have grounds to believe that that sin is forgiven. So that, I think, is how I would explain those texts then. That yes, there, when we first believe in Christ, there is, there is the grounds laid in the blood of Christ in his death for the forgiveness of all sins, certainly past and present, but for future sins as well. But that we can't have the comfort of the forgiveness of that sin until we confess it to God and receive his repentance. And we should not just naively conclude that every sin we commit is, un, is, is just somehow uh, automatically forgiven. It may be a symptom of something far deeper 
and far more serious. So that's how I would answer that question, and that's actually how I would answer it. It's generally uh, that Reformed theology has answered the question in that way. Well, my friends, we come then to, these, to this application, and in the first place, this, this serious question that we've already addressed somewhat. Are your sins forgiven? What else really matters in life, my dear friends, but the answer that we give to this question? We know that there are people, there were people in Scripture, there are people in every church who believe that their sins are forgiven, but they deceive themselves on this point. And so it behooves us then to examine our own hearts and to know with certainty that I have believed in Christ and I am trusting in him alone. And that in him, I find a full forgiveness. And when we have doubts about this question, when we have doubts that rise in our hearts, that rise in our minds about our own status, are my sins really and truly forgiven? We must not just dismiss those questions, my friends. We must not just dismiss those doubts. But we have to look them in the face, in the light of the gospel, in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we look at those sins in the light of the gospel, we find this this wonderful gospel truth that when we confess our sins, Christ will forgive us our sins. And there we find assurance that all our sins are forgiven. And that leads me to my second point, my friends. My sins are forgiven. My sins are forgiven. This is the point, my friends, where we must come. My sins are forgiven. We cannot live in doubt or with questions on this point. We must come to this point in our life where we say with confidence, my sins are forgiven. And then I ask you, my friends, to consider the truth that we already considered. That when we say our sins are forgiven us, then we are saying that those sins are not just pardoned, not just forgiven, but they are taken off the record completely. They are taken off the record. Welcome to our service this evening, brother. Our sins are completely forgiven, completely wiped off the record. And when the catechism says to us this evening, my sins will not be remembered anymore, what a glorious truth that is, my friends, to consider. Now, I know that there are people here who have sins that they've committed in the past, sins that continue to come up in our memory, that bother us, that rob us of our peace and of our joy in Christ. But I ask you, my friends, then today, this evening, to look at those sins in the light of the gospel. And in the light of the gospel, in the light of the blood of Jesus Christ, those sins are not to be found any longer. God doesn't see them on your record. You remember what the psalmist said in the 103rd Psalm. As far as east from west is distant, so far has he removed our sins from us. That means, my friends, that it's not possible to put more distance between our sins and the justice of God. How is it, my friends, that when we look look in in our record and we see the record of our sins, yes, they've been taken away, forgiven in terms of the state and local governments. But in God's courtroom, those sins don't exist. In fact, that record is as pure, as white, 
as the record of Christ himself. Because it's his righteousness that is imputed to us. Now what sin, my friends, what blemish would you hope to see on Christ's record? I ask you to answer that this evening. Because when you put your faith in Christ, that perfect record was given to us. Now is that not a glorious truth? What manner of men ought we to be, my friends? What manner of women ought we to be when we consider this truth? Isn't it the case that when we move from this truth, that all my sins have been wiped out, that now we're in a position to come back to this morning's sermon and to think about living as in a way of humility? This is what we considered, my friends, after we read the psalm today, that God comes alongside us now and he says, I will show you the way to go. I will lead you with my eye upon you. And we, my friends, look at our record and we say, but Lord, all these sins that I've committed, all these things I've done in my youth, all this wickedness that I've seen with my eyes, all the wickedness that I've done with these hands, Lord, what about all that? And it's all been wiped away. And it's all been wiped clean, removed as far as the east from the west is distant. My friend, if if that doesn't fill you with a new strength and a new courage and a new resolve to walk with God day by day, then you haven't really understood it. I hope, my friends, that God will give us a fresh look at this truth that we've confessed from our youngest days, but to look at it in the light of the gospel and to, and to step out these doors with a new courage to walk with God and to serve him as a forgiven sinner. Oh, we often say that, don't we? I'm a forgiven sinner. But what a reality is wrapped up in that happy term. May God bless these things to us. Let us pray. Lord, we draw near to you at the close of this sermon. And we revel in the joy of this happy truth, that our sins are forgiven. That as far as east from west is distant, so far hath he removed my sins from me. O God, we pray that in this evening, as we reflect upon this truth, that we would be so astonished with your goodness and so full of love for you and of all the amazing grace that you've shown to us, that we could step out this door with a new energy and with a new resolve to serve you and to honor you with all of our life, with all that we have and all that we are. Lord, please bless us then as we leave this place. We pray that your hand would be upon us. Give us love for each other. And grant that the world might see and witness that we as forgiven sinners are resolved to serve the risen Christ. That we will walk with him day by day and honor him and live to him. And one day be received into the heavenly mansions above to the glory of your great name. Lord, hear our prayer. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn in the red hymnal. Let's turn in the red hymnal to number 492. 492. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. Let's sing the six verses of 492 in the red hymnal.
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.